Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up, the penultimate episode of the year. And oddly enough for us, it's actually going to be mostly an e-commerce episode. We'll talk about Chewy's earnings that came out on Monday. We'll also discuss a CBRE research piece that talks a little bit about digital returns and we'll lead off the show with the big news that was controlling all of the major media outlets earlier this week. A reminder, you can like us, rate us wherever you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's Spotify, any of those, you can leave us a rating that'll help other people find us. If you don't want to help other people find us, well, no begrudging that, certainly, but you can certainly leave a review if you like what you hear. One other thing I did want to mention before we get into the meat of the show is that we'll have an interview guest next week. Really excited. Danny Cushion making her return to the show from Cardlytics. She's going to discuss taking over market share from distressed retailers. And of course, our year end show, we rank our top five, our bottom five retailers. We say goodbye to those that declared bankruptcy. So an especially pertinent interview coming up. We've actually got four interview guests coming up each of the next four episodes. No interview guest here today because we do have the holidays coming up rather quickly. One final housekeeping note. You can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Retail Podcast. I've got some pictures from recent retail travels that I'll be posting there here over the next week. So again, our lead story, this captured news outlets throughout not only the retail landscape, but also the larger news outlets out there, the CNNs and NBCs of the world, Amazon and FedEx are at odds. We knew this much because of the contract that was broken earlier this year, not so much broken, but allowed to expire. But this tete-a-tete between Amazon and FedEx appears to have ensnared Amazon marketplace sellers as well. And Leighton, we talked about this earlier in the week when we were kind of deciding stories. And this is a pretty big story, especially for those third-party sellers. You know, we've known Amazon and FedEx to be on the outs for some time now, but things seem to have reached ahead this week as the retail world kind of learned details of the split that might affect those third-party sellers. Yeah, and it was not just the retail world. Basically, the entire business world was talking about this particular story this week because here are these two huge companies. They dominate the areas in which they work. And you see FedEx definitely in the news for a number of reasons this year. But this time it was tied to a story that we cover, which is retail-based. And of particular noteworthiness, this was Amazon's blocking of third-party sellers from using FedEx ground for prime deliveries. And we're going to be getting into some of the specifics here. So we want to be clear that not all the major media really covered the details, so to speak, the specifics of this story. So we're going to dive in a little bit more than maybe you would have seen on some of those major media headlines. But this was announced earlier this week, and this caused a good deal of consternation among onlookers about the reasons why, and also drove down FedEx's share price by around 8%, which is something that a lot of people did cover after the announcement of the different details came out on Wednesday. And taken as a whole this week, Trent, FedEx's share price is down around $20 from around 
the $168 price point from the beginning of the week. Initially, the news reported in the Wall Street Journal suggested a decline of performance as the reason. So we're talking about on-time deliveries here from FedEx, which seemed reasonable enough. However, the data from Convey, supply chain-based software company, painted a clearer picture later in the day on Wednesday, December 18th. And let's discuss that detail that we were talking about. Let's dig into this initial news a little bit. According to the Wall Street Journal, the third party sellers block comes actually from prime shipments only via FedEx ground and sellers could still use FedEx ground for non-prime shipments or opt to use FedEx Express at a higher cost, of course, for prime shipments. So FedEx Express being a little bit of a faster, more expensive option if those people, if those third-party sellers chose not to use any other system. So this much is not really a ban on FedEx as much as some people have been reporting as it is a specification and options for those third-party sellers. Again, the idea behind the block is flagging performance for FedEx in on-time shipments and Amazon's desire to retain positive perceptions surrounding, of course, their major prime platform. Their membership platform is considered one of the best out there in terms of delivering on those two-day deadlines. And we should be mindful that third-party sellers are reflecting greater amounts of product sales by a percentage of revenue than any other time in Amazon's history. So in theory, this ban could provide a lot of impacts for them. So if you look, FedEx didn't seem to think so. They said that this will only impact a small number of shippers before playing up the whole limiting options for small business thing. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But you look, in fact, a FedEx spokeswoman told the Wall Street Journal that the overall impact to its business would be, and I quote, minuscule. What was not minuscule was the $900 million in contracts that were terminated earlier this year between Amazon and FedEx. So we're going to rewind the clock a little bit and see that these two companies have, in fact, been at odds in the recent past. And you see that FedEx responded to the non-renewal of that, the Amazon deals here, by clinging more tightly to Walmart and Target as of late. However, it could be argued that there isn't much of an upside there with both stores, especially Target, which we've been mentioning a lot here on the podcast, opting to fulfill a large number of e-commerce orders through local stores and, of course, in-house last-mile services that they've been touting. And getting back to the impact on third-party sellers, Trent, it may not be too extensive. A lot of people played up the fact, and again, FedEx did as well, that third-party sellers with that less optionality may be hamstrung in terms of who they go to for the shipping options and as a result, pay higher costs and have lesser margins. Many of them use multiple shipping platforms anyhow to attempt to leverage low costs on shipments to different areas between the platforms. This would suggest not many sellers used FedEx Ground exclusively to fulfill any prime orders. We would imagine that this might increase costs for third-party sellers slightly if UPS is slightly more expensive to ship in a certain area versus FedEx, for example. But maybe not have as great of an impact as FedEx's spokespeople had previously suggested. So moving on to the reason why, Trent, if you were using the numbers quoted in the Wall Street Journal, it would be truly head-scratching with only about 2% separating those on-time deliveries between UPS and FedEx. And I think that's what caught both of us by surprise earlier in the week because we looked at those numbers and said, you know, 
we get why Amazon wants a little bit greater efficiency, but we're looking at a difference between 2 and 3% in terms of on-time shipping. That's not a huge difference when you look at the shipping landscape as a whole, and you can see those differences even come out on a season-to-season basis. A lot of times they're weather-impacted depending on where hubs are, but when you dig a little bit deeper, and an article from Forbes later in the week certainly did this, found numbers from a different third-party researcher in Convey, and that showed a much more drastic difference and, what's more, a significant fall-off in FedEx's performance. And again, here we're looking at FedEx's ground performance, Amazon still letting sellers use FedEx Express if they so choose to fulfill those prime items, but Convey's numbers suggested that FedEx's on-time delivery performance Pretty much the key metric, by the way, when you're evaluating any shipper for use is that on-time delivery performance, but for them, slipping in a big way. Their on-time delivery performance during the surveyed period, which is right after Black Friday, right after Thanksgiving, 68.3% in 2019. Think about that. 68.3% of their packages were delivered on time not a good number for them, and that's compared to 77.5% for the same period in 2018. So this shines a little bit more light on why Amazon would have chosen to make this decision on behalf of their third-party sellers is because, again, customers often can't see that things are being fulfilled by a third party. They just see that it's a prime product. They expect that delivery to be on time, and roughly FedEx is getting it right two out of every three times. But lest there be concern related to small sample size for Convey. Convey analyzed 2.5 billion shipping events shipped from over 500,000 locations since Thanksgiving. So they do have a bird's eye view, a 30,000 foot view, if you will, over this issue. And these numbers were much worse than the ship matrix numbers included in the Wall Street Journal article, which suggested 90.4% of FedEx's deliveries were on time. So you're looking at a Big difference of about 22%. You wonder if they included both ground and express shipments in the data sets as well for each of these companies. But the reason for the running behind on so many packages for FedEx is suggested to stem from more packages going to residential addresses now, increasingly for FedEx's business, versus commercial addresses, which is, in theory, placing stress on FedEx's infrastructure. Now, FedEx executives came out earlier in December, and we know that a lot of people are talking about the weather. They're talking about how weather's had a negative impact. Same thing with UPS executives. But in this case, we're looking at something that seems to be endemic to FedEx, and FedEx has historically been a business-centric logistics firm. So, The glut of packages, often when you're talking prime packages, single products inside, that's causing a bit of an issue as FedEx aims to keep up. And I know businesses that I've worked for in the past, businesses that Layton's worked for in the past, use FedEx quite a bit. They're seen as a big B2B logistics firm. But again, you don't necessarily think of FedEx as someone that's delivering to a bunch of retail addresses, at least up until the last five years. And even on a FedEx earnings call we covered about a year ago, they were pretty upfront about challenges presented by needing to shift their core structure. Now, although FedEx's numbers were poor, UPS actually also saw a drop during the time frame from an 86% on-time delivery rate to 80%. And again, those numbers coming from Convey. But you look and 80% for UPS, still way in front of 68.3% for FedEx. 
The ship matrix numbers quoted by the Wall Street Journal were actually 92.7% for UPS the week after Black Friday, being able to hit those goals, being able to deliver things on time. Either way you slice it, you look at that 12% difference that's set from Convey's numbers, and that's leaps and bounds in the shipping world ahead of where FedEx is. And by the way, just in case you're curious, the U.S. Postal Service, meanwhile, They saw an increase in the number of on-time deliveries during that same time frame. So we talk about UPS taking a step back. We talk about FedEx taking a step back. The Postal Service, of all things, stepping forward, a jump from 76% last year on-time deliveries to 86% this year. All three platforms, meanwhile, seeing improvements in the number of packages reported delivered but missing. So, again, if you're Amazon, you're giving those third-party sellers a choice FedEx ground, you're worried that that's kind of eroding the trust that people have in the Prime platform. And again, the numbers from Convey bear this out. So this is maybe a greater reason why we're seeing this massive shift. And Leighton, that same article in Forbes discussed how these short-term challenges to Amazon's customer satisfaction may actually present a longer-term opportunity for Amazon. I always love business speak when people say that problems or Potential issues in the marketplace should be spun off as opportunities or potential long-term positives for a particular industry. It's always interesting to see how executives can spin things around in order to sound not always so negative. But as this article points out, Trent, Amazon shareholders seem not to care as much about earnings as revenues. And the creation of their own shipping platform would provide them the opportunity, Amazon that is, to do just that the article also mentioned Amazon's leveraging of company stock for use as an employee benefit, a recruiting tool, so to speak. So we should point out that Amazon's had their own issues on a number of new programs over the past few years, and their own shipping platforms have been one of them. It's been one of their shortcomings. It's been well documented that their use of 1099 workers has caused some issues in certain markets. Although Amazon attempts to control and limit their liability, of course, which is why they do that, incidents have cropped up with a number of independent contractors. So again, 1099 workers there that call Amazon's practices into question. We've been hearing a lot about this on both the small niche media outlets out there, but then also NPR has been talking a lot here recently about potential issues with their labor there with 1099 workers, of course, Uber in the news for similar things. Additionally, Amazon's existing shipping platforms in certain markets leave something to be desired at times. And Trent, I know recently you told me of a hilarious story. I know you live in Colorado now. Some issues there where an Amazon delivery driver delivered to you an empty and open envelope. So that is a problem. And as if that weren't bad enough, the product that was supposed to be there, in theory, in the envelope was scheduled for prime delivery several days prior. So a lot of different issues within that particular market. And that is going to be something that we see in a lot of other markets here recently as well. However, Ship Matrix's numbers, which again skew higher than convey, indicate that Amazon's own on-time numbers sat at over 93% for the week after Black Friday. Pretty good numbers there. Still, Amazon's own shipment platforms have faced enough scrutiny from customers that their senior vice president, Dave Clark, felt compelled to address issues back on December 6th. 
Ultimately, while some analysts believe that Amazon is unassailable in any venture it attempts, we should be mindful that there are swings and misses in the past or, to carry the analogy even further, swings and slow grounders to second. A good example of this is fairly recent. The Whole Foods acquisition is a good example there in which they failed to capture the massive market share in grocery that all of the analysts were saying was going to happen even natural grocery, Trent, and we talked about this just last week on the podcast about how startups or maybe small to mid-sized companies even that are currently in the natural grocery space have found room for expansion, potentially taking off maybe opportunities for Whole Foods to expand in the future years. But honestly, Trent, this kind of coincides with that methodology and that not everything they do turns to gold. Everything is sort of a work in progress. And if you're a longtime shareholder, you should know that by now. Now we move on to what Trent had alluded to earlier in the pet space as Chewy had the third ever earnings call Monday after market close. Immediate reaction, Trent, to the call was fairly muted as we didn't see much in terms of share price fluctuation in one direction or another after the call. We covered their first call, by the way, six months ago, if you were listening to that particular podcast episode, where they missed badly on analyst expectations. And I remember that, Trent, because Chewy, that was a huge IPO. They also missed on expectations during their second ever earnings call, leading some to wonder, us included, if the company would ever begin to trim losses. Remember, they were spun off into a public entity from PetSmart earlier in 2019. And on this call, they still revealed a loss, but were actually able to grow gross margins over the last year, which is indeed a positive sign for the company. Well, let's talk about the numbers on the call. The call was for their fiscal 2019 third quarter, for which analysts expected a loss of 16 cents per share. Before we discuss their bottom line, let's talk about their overall revenue. Chewy came in with net sales of $1.23 billion, a 40% growth year over year. When you consider the e-commerce pure play nature of their business, this growth actually puts them in the same category as the most robust of e-commerce sales from the retail giants, that brick and mortar.com type sales, like for example, Walmart. But again, it was the gross margin that caught our eye as they saw a 410 basis point expansion over last year's third quarter. Overall, their gross margin came in at 23.7% of sales. Not enough to produce a profit or even positive EBITDA, but still a massive step in the right direction. As far as that bottom line is concerned, Chewy saw a net loss of $79 million in the quarter, which included a non-cash share-based compensation charge of $39.3 million. Their adjusted EBITDA loss, however, did actually improve year over year with a loss of $30.2 million coming in a whopping 56% better than last year's third quarter. Finally, as far as the numbers are concerned, lest we risk boring everyone to death, their EBITDA margin of negative 2.5% did reflect a 530 basis point improvement over last year. So again, improvement is kind of the name of what's going on with this earnings call. And all the numbers are well and good, but our main reason for covering this call was to see exactly what their ever-optimistic and positive CEO Sumit Singh would say about the company's progress in the quarter. So, turn to the call for that. We're on that particular conference call. Beyond just top-line sales growth, the company saw growth in active customers, 
by a whopping 33% year over year. So we talked about the 40-some percent increase in top-line sales overall, but again, they're growing their customer base too. It's not just the customers are spending more money at Chewy, but they're bringing in more customers with their proposition. 33%, again, year over year, and indicates, again, basket size might not have grown appreciably, but traffic and repeat sales have. To that point, net sales per active customer grew 11% to $360, which, again, is mind-blowing. You talk about a retailer, just any brick-and-mortar retailer looking at a $360 increase per active customer, they would take that seven days a week and twice on Sunday. And so, again, certainly underscores the idea that people are spending more and more on their pets. As we've talked about ad nauseum for the past three years on the podcast, auto ship sales, by the way, something that came up a lot on the call, make up a big chunk of this growth per customer. 70.4% of their overall net sales come from auto ship sales. So you're talking about subscription type items, people buying a bag of dog food and having it delivered once a month. They've been able to use this feature in a way actually that few other e-commerce retailers have been able to do. We've even seen Amazon with a few false starts in this space. And we think of Amazon, or a lot of other people do at least, as unassailable in e-commerce. Well, Chewy is doing something that even the best e-commerce retailers out there haven't been able to do, and that's cultivate these auto ship subscription type sales, which made me really excited actually about what they had to say on the call. I'll be honest, I've been a little bit bearish regarding Chewy in the past simply because of the costs associated with distributing product. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but seeing this information from Chewy, seeing them turn things around on the margin front really turned around my bearishness a little bit. And some analysts on the call actually appeared critical of their promotional activity, Chewy's promotional activity surrounding auto ship. And Singh actually mentioned on the call that they had a three-day promotion offering 60% off a customer's first auto ship order up to $30 off a certain product. However, Chewy leadership maintained that this discounting was necessary to not only keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, but also win over new subscription customers, which it is clear that they did. So not only are they investing in marketing in the forms of price discounts for initial auto ship items, but that is clearly working. And so when Chewy acknowledged the need to run cyclical promotions as necessary in order to continue to attract new customers and keep up with the marketplace, I was certainly on board with that idea. Now, some analysts saw this a little bit as a caution who were not enthralled with the price investments. One other thing I wanted to mention before tossing it back to Leighton is part of their customer growth, they feel, has to do with the addition of SKUs in the website. In the e-commerce space, they're in a really good spot versus their brick-and-mortar parent, so to speak, in PetSmart, in that adding new and emerging products doesn't necessitate making chain-wide shelf space. Rather, simply adding warehouse space. They've got now coming up at least four fulfillment centers throughout the United States. All you have to do to add another item is add a little warehouse space rather than making the space on the shelf, which we know in brick-and-mortar retail can be so hard fought after. They've leveraged this capability to the tune of 25% more SKUs on a year-over-year basis. And what's even more impressive is a lot of these, yeah, sure, they're in hard goods, things that don't really spoil or go bad, 
But a lot of these are also in consumables, which tells me also that the turnover of product is good enough to keep those consumables from going bad and to keep that turnover going. Additionally, they were able to add a few new product verticals in the past year. They talked about these a lot on the call as well, signaling kind of the relative ease of being able to add those new product verticals versus doing so in the brick and mortar space. Because again, for Chewy, it's just a matter of adding inventory in warehouses and advertising it appropriately. In the past, our open question has been, we know they are increasing sales, but can they turn things around on the margin front and make those sales more profitable? And this is sort of the theme of the story here, looking at how successful they are in a number of different avenues, yet can still not turn a profit, which of course is their fiduciary duty at the end of the day to their shareholders. So as we already mentioned, the answer is yes, at least for this quarter. Although they did not experience a chain-wide profit, that is, the gross margin we discussed earlier did increase. So a reminder there that things are running more efficiently. And as a result, I'll get into those details. We mentioned the impairment from the share-based compensation earlier. But as far as other expenses that stood out, there weren't that many. There were increased costs incurred from being a public company since they were not a public company at this time last year. So year over year, they're probably going to be paying more in terms of their tax accountants, let's say. Additionally, they mentioned on the call about their ability to leverage scale in order to break through on the profit front. And one of the benefits, for example, was marketing spend as a percentage of net sales. They're able to spend a little bit more, but spread it out amongst all of their division in order to be a little bit more economical. So marketing spend is similar to what maybe it has been in the past, but their net growth means that it isn't dramatically cutting into margins as it once was. This quarter, advertising costs were 9.1% of sales, a decrease of 230 basis points year over year. And Trent, you may look at that 9.1% of net sales and look at a lot of other companies, especially startups, and say, that is still quite a bit of money for a company that just had an IPO. But to the CEO's point and all of the executives really on the call, looking at the company as a whole in relation to competition they have to funnel in a ton of marketing dollars. And I personally believe, getting back to how economical and efficient they are getting at it, they are having wide success. Just look at the amount of repeat customers they have. They are doing something right in terms of customer acquisition and keeping those customers engaged, which of course is the most important part for any online retailer. Further, continued investments in private label products and marketing these on the site itself was credited for margin growth. Brands like Frisco now take more of a center stage on the site. Another margin contributor was their e-pharmacy division as the margin in pharmacy business grew around 650 basis points over last year. They also feel as though they had the upper hand or in general an upper hand on most retail e-commerce sites as they encourage customers to create pet profiles of their pets and people of course as trent said love their pets but they want to tie into that that sentimental value a little bit more than maybe other retailers have the ability to do and this of course is used aggressively for marketing upsells and of course product recommendations most e-commerce sites have to build customer profiles on the back end so once you check out then they extract all of the data that they can out of you but they won't ask for information about you up front because they don't want to alienate a potential customer and seem too invasive. 
This is a topic we actually discussed in last week's interview with Rob McGovern from Precise Target as e-commerce outfits attempt to address that customer data problem. However, in this case, people are way more willing to disclose information about their pets themselves because there are fewer privacy concerns on behalf of shoppers and people. They just love talking about their pets. Let's be honest. If you have an Instagram or a Twitter account out there, those pet owners are all about showcasing their particular pet. So they were able to build this data in an enhanced recommendation engine on the site, which they believed assisted the company in Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales, which, by the way, were also helped by the sheer increase of active customers on the online marketplaces in general. So there were some specific pet product questions from Aaron Wright of Credit Suisse leading on to another topic here. And it was clear that Aaron Wright had done plenty of research heading into this call. The first question was actually about the new flea, tick, and heart wound preventative hitting the market. Wright's question was about whether or not their pharmaceutical division risk cannibalizing their over-the-counter medication sales. An excellent question. Singh, the CEO again, said that their strategy is basically the same across the board, wherein if there is a new product, it is their responsibility to carry that product at a competitive price, whether in pharma or the over-the-counter division. And so the second question was a very specific one, and it was in regards to the new FDA labeling of grain-free dog food and whether this creates new opportunities for Chewy to push customers towards maybe private label products. Again, Singh said it is all about their dialogue, their transparency with the customers. And if their consumers have concerns with grain-free foods, it is up to Chewy to have an open dialogue with consumers about all of the other options, wherever those might be within their particular verticals. And I think these were great answers, Trent, because this really pointed to the fact that they're telling you, they're telling the analysts, they're telling the shareholders, they're telling the customers that we want to have every available product. We're going to be within all the regulatory guidelines and we're going to be at a competitive price no matter what the strategy. And I think that was a very telling message to the company's overarching strategy and one that really speaks to how they want to grow this business. And one of our largest questions about the long-term stability of margin for Chewy has always been fulfillment and shipping costs. And Trent, I know you wanted to talk about this, so I'll hand it over to you. But you can see on the fulfillment front, the CFO had a lot of good things to say. Yeah, Mario Marte, who is their CFO, said that their fulfillment costs remain fixed year over year, which is good because we're hearing a lot of retailers, e-commerce and brick and mortar likewise, talking about how fulfillment costs are going up over last year. But Marte also said that they got a small benefit from selling general administrative expenses from labor productivity improvements, basically able to be more productive with the human capital that they do have within their organization. Part of this, though, ties into their continued expansion and scaling up of their Boston distribution center and their so-called HQ2, to borrow a term from Amazon, to complement their previously existing Phoenix headquarters and distribution center. On the shipping front, however, they didn't address any specific trends beyond addressing that their new North Carolina distribution center should help matters that DC, by the way, expected to open very soon. No news, however, on the actual last mile front. And given shipping costs cited by other retailers, this is worrisome. Also worrisome, the fact that no one brought this up on the call, no other analyst brought this up on the call, despite representing a substantial cost for Chewy, 
with their free and reduced shipping offers. This has been a main theme on previous calls. Kind of worrisome to see that go away here because, again, this is our personal chief concern for the business moving forward. They're extracting greater margins from most products, including pharmacy, as you heard Leighton mention. There's still a big question, though, surrounding mitigating those shipping costs long term. So we move on to a related story as CBRE, by the way, shout out to Chris Hudson, communications guru extraordinaire for CBRE for reaching out to us with this story. But CBRE, who is a very well-known, again, commercial real estate firm, they released a research report that suggests that e-commerce returns could put pressure on warehouses in early 2020. Now, returns are always a big topic of conversation for retailers after the holidays. For as long as I can remember, not only brick-and-mortar retailers, but e-commerce retailers as they were first starting up in the 90s, this is a big question for them. But with more businesses gradually moving to digital or digital-adjacent channels, there's an increased onus on retailers to handle a potential glut of returns purchased in this way. So, as it is... Handling brick-and-mortar returns can be difficult enough for retailers. Anyone who's worked the week or two after Christmas in a brick-and-mortar retailer could tell you that. I remember my first job, again, first retail job was with a Kmart. I worked double time around the holidays just putting returns back on the shelf or processing returns at the service desk. So this is a major concern for retailers. They have to find space and pack away or on shelves for the return merchandise, which can be problematic for some of the seasonal merchandise in particular because they've already made room for other merchandise. In this case, the next season along would be Valentine's Day. It also, of course, takes labor to provide the returns for store guests and to restock. So not only to give the money back to the store guests, but also to put that merchandise back on shelves or back in the stock room. And that all forces brick and mortar retailers to staff their stores disproportionately to sales in the post-holiday season because you're seeing a lot of returns during that time. You need to staff highly but might not be paid back in the terms of sales. But for this story, we're not talking about labor necessarily, but we're talking about other non-labor pressures that retailers may face as returns increasingly move digital, as sales move digital. And as CBRE points out in the research, it's not so much the digital sales themselves placing stress on logistics, but the fact that those returns are so often free and that removes customer barriers. They don't have to think twice about removing a product. And so you see a large flow of returns back into the system. Basically, by removing friction for the customer, that's placed some back end stress on the retailer. So I wanted to talk about the study basics and then I'll turn it over to Leighton for kind of the meat and potatoes of the matter. Now, the study is working off the assumption that online holiday sales are forecast to come in at $138.5 billion, which is an increase of 13.5% over last year. By the way, this number comes by way of Digital Commerce 360, although there are a number of firms out there forecasting sales in a similar band. So we don't see this too far off from what we're probably going to experience this year as a whole. However, the issue with this is that a whopping $41.6 billion worth of these products are expected to be returned. So $41.6 billion worth of $138.5 billion e-commerce sales are projected to be returned. And this is based on historical and present year data. Now, it'd be reasonable to look at that number on its face and say, man, that seems high. Nearly 30% of e-commerce sales being returned, but... 
Historical data shows very clearly that e-commerce sales have a much higher rate of return year-round, around 15 to 30 percent. This is highly dependent on time of year and promotional workings, which means that it peaks right after the holiday season. And actually, as we'll talk about right before some of the holidays, in fact, several Obvious reasons stand out for this discrepancy between brick and mortar and digital here. Apparel not fitting correctly would be an obvious one. Potential damage in transit, the item not appearing as expected, and so forth. Along with all the reasons merchandise purchased in a regular brick and mortar setting might also be returned. Now, this is something that's often ignored by those trumpeting e-commerce as the future of retail. And Leighton, you and I get emails every single week talking about, well, how can brick and mortar retailers compete with e-commerce, this, that, and the other thing. But the reality of it is e-commerce sales might be going up, but returns in that segment are there. They're ever present. They're at a higher rate than brick and mortar, and they are costly. So even though e-commerce sales might be up for a given retailer, doesn't mean that a proportional impact will be seen for retailers bottom lines after returns and write-offs are accounted for. But Leighton, one thing I already alluded to, the most impressive of this is that not all of these are actually returned post-holiday season. In fact, the returns start flowing in before Christmas. Yeah, that's right, Trent. And I just literally experienced that before recording this podcast. I was at Walmart Who knows why, basically, Trent, because I ended up regretting that long line. But I was at Walmart buying some gift cards, and I noticed the return line had to have security and customer service basically escorting it around the store. It was that large. It was literally going into produce. And that was one of the first times that I really noticed. And you and I go into retailers all the time, not just to shop, but just to analyze the operations of these particular businesses. I had never remembered seeing something like this before, and it was just absolutely mind-blowing. Another mind-blowing thing is that UPS estimates that U.S. shoppers will return a around 1.6 million packages per day the week before Christmas. I'll say that again. 1.6 million packages per day the week before Christmas, or the week we're in right now, basically, recording this very podcast. So part of the reason for this may be attributed to people returning merchandise purchased during e-commerce days or promotional periods like Black Friday or Cyber Monday promotions. UPS goes on to estimate that returns will peak in the new year. So back to what most people would take into consideration is the norm for returns around 1.9 million packages per day. This would represent a whopping 26% increase from last year. What is impressive about the return numbers here is that multiple companies and research firms are projecting such a high return number as a whole. So a direct result from all of these numbers is the flowing back upstream of this particular merchandise. All of these returns have to go back somewhere. And as e-commerce pure plays and brick and must find a way to cope with this issue, this massive, massive issue. CBRE does a great job plotting out the general flow of merchandise back into the company system after being reintroduced through the return process. After a product is returned, it might be resold as new throughout traditional channels, of course, and may be detailed through discount channels. And especially in the case of retailers who have outlet stores, but also in store clearance sections for 
such merchandise, like Best Buy, for instance. If broken, it may need to be fixed or refurbished before returning to retail channels. Labor, of course, is involved here, as well as entirely marked down merchandise. When I worked in retail, Trent, we had a glut of returns, which is what we're talking about right now. But a lot of this had to be resold as refurbished goods. So think of electronics. Once they're already opened, they then have to be labeled as refurbished. They are no longer, quote unquote, new products. So that is going to take a lot of retailers a hit on the margin front. If broken and unable to be fixed, or if it is otherwise not retailable, let's say, this opens up another series of possibilities. It could be simply trashed and they could just take the hit on the accounting front. Trashing merchandise is not free, it should be noted. It could be donated, those pieces of merchandise that are applicable. It could be sent for use in remanufacturing. It could also, or at least portions of it, could be recycled. And this doesn't even include what must be done with the packaging, which again comes down to the recycling or just throwing away entirely. So not only is there the reintroduction of the product into the retailer's model, but it comes at a very clear cost as well. If not all of that previous statement made it clear, it can be very, very expensive for these retailers. According to this study, shipped returns present several challenges, not only in processing the return, but needless shipments as well. It is estimated that e-commerce returns result in over 10 billion needless shipments industry-wide. Between shipment and labor, you're looking, Trent, at around $50 billion in profit loss in the United States alone. Aside from encouraging add-ons and upsells, this is part of the reason why retailers underscore the in-store functions for e-commerce. If they can handle the returns in-store, it provides a great deal of cost savings. So not only the cost savings from the sell side of things, we're talking about retailers like Target and Walmart with their ability to pick up a lot of those online orders, but also processing those online orders at the same stores in which you pick them up. There are also new third-party platforms like Happy Returns who assist in serving the middleman function in e-commerce returns. Some new, shall we say, opportunities for new businesses out there. And now that we've talked about some of the basics, let's talk a little bit more about the discrete impacts on logistics that returns do present. First, we should establish that warehouse space for retailers and supply chain as well is not linear throughout the year. Indeed, Uptoro really does estimate that the fluctuation can be dramatic with four to seven times more space allocation required during peak buying periods, like two weeks ago, for example. Additionally, there is very little room for movement, according to CBRE. As we've discussed in the past, warehouse vacancy is actually fairly low currently. In fact, 19 U.S. industrial markets have vacancy rates below, get this, 4.4% on the national average as of the third quarter. That is an extremely low vacancy rate. And we talk about REITs on this podcast, but we do not necessarily talk about those industrial warehouses and how they're processing, how their supply versus demand dynamic is. Right now, warehouses are packed full of merchandise, either coming in or going out. Worse for retailers, at least, a reverse logistics supply chain takes about 15 to 20% more space than the traditional outbound supply chain does. And you look further, the space required, and this is something that we hadn't really thought of until this report, is more closely aligned with second generation space. The reason? 
the palette loads are a little bit more awkward, making them poor fits for the high ceiling styles found in Class A warehouse spaces of today. This results in demand for third-party logistics providers such as XBO to handle the reverse logistics supply chain. In fact, third-party logistics providers, by the way, have grown by 31% in square footage over the last four years, not just because of returns, but for other reasons. But you can see that this is an extreme opportunity for companies like XBO to sort of be a little bit of an add-on here as a logistics provider. Finally, as we alluded to earlier, Trent, these returns pose a question of environmental concerns for most retailers. And this actually ties in directly with a report from CNBC that I saw a couple weeks ago talking about the environmental impact from all of Amazon's returns that they get, not just at the end of the year during the holiday season, but throughout the entirety of a business year. So it is estimated that returns produce around 5 billion pounds of waste in landfills and 15 million metric tons of CO2 emissions from the transportation because of course, logistics. So what are the potential answers here for e-commerce retailers? Well, for one trend, making sure that the customer gets the product they are desired should reduce returns on the whole, but we can look a little bit further and see some other opportunities for both the customers and the retailers. Yeah, it's entirely possible that retailers come up with more accurate ways to describe sizes on apparel, for example. Again, we know Apparel being missized, not fitting, not working out is a big reason for those returns. Although, honestly, you know, I haven't seen that from some prominent e-commerce retailers quite yet. In fact, most e-commerce pure play makers of men's dress shirts, which is what I most commonly shop for online. I'll give an example, Mizzen in Maine, but there are multiple others that do this. They still advertise sizes as small, medium, large, and so forth, rather than giving more exact measurements. So you have no idea the width of the neck, the width of the torso, the length of the arms on these particular shirts. So you don't have a good idea of this. What ends up happening is you purchase the shirt, the arms are too small, too short, the torso is too large, maybe too small. So it just kind of depends. And again, you're not seeing these exact measurements from these apparel manufacturers. Honestly, Indochino, who we've discussed at length in the podcast, and we actually interviewed their CEO at a point a couple of years ago, they seem to have a much better approach from a waste minimizing perspective. But again, that's because they are manufacturing goods basically for each order. Now, Aside from this aspect of it, CBRA suggests augmented reality and other features may help to reduce the number of returns in the future, perhaps by being able to show someone how a pillow is going to look in their living room might mitigate those return factors. We'll wait and see as a number of companies certainly rolling those out. We've seen it a lot as we've talked about in the health and beauty space with the likes of Ulta and Sephora. Another option is to partner with brick-and-mortar retailers to reduce packaging and shipping costs, so looking to reduce the packaging waste here. CBRA actually mentioned Kohl's partnership with Amazon as an excellent example of this. The only problem is, if you don't have the scale of Amazon, this is really tough. It's not an option for you if you're a smaller e-commerce pure play who can't strike deals with the size of Amazon or with the size that Amazon can. You know, Think of Mizzen and Maine calling up Kohl's and saying, hey, do you mind accepting our returns and running a national ad campaign for it and this, that, and the other thing? That's just not 
a realistic approach. And another potential is, of course, encouraging the repurposing of the product or maybe encouraging donations. This is something actually we've seen in the bed in a box crowned, something that mattress manufacturer Tuft and Needle does, arranging to have unwanted mattresses donated to homeless shelters and the like. Many mattress manufacturers do take this same approach. And of course, one other thing, as Leighton mentioned, is potentially partnering with third parties like Happy Returns, for example, to provide those returns. In any case, this is a very concrete concern for e-commerce pure plays. And despite the fact that we're talking about e-commerce sales going up over 13% and everyone talking about e-commerce eating into brick and mortar, this is a huge issue. And it's also a big issue for omni-channel retailers as well. Those brick and mortar dot coms, if you will, as Cardlytics likes to refer to them as that are seeing sales increasingly go towards the digital channel bit by bit. And we've seen concerns stemming from returns as a major reason, in fact, why some retailers are hesitant to embrace e-commerce. Ross would be a great example of this. Ross came out on their last earnings call and they said, hey, between returns, between shipping, it doesn't make sense for us to get into the e-commerce space. Ultimately, with warehouse space at a premium and shipping costs generally on the rise, E-commerce outlets are going to have to find a way to minimize overall returns to find some semblance of margin and profitability. We talk about it so often, these e-commerce pure plays struggle to find that profitability. It's funny because Indochino doesn't. Their EBITDA has been positive, actually, even as a startup. But as e-commerce becomes more popular year over year, warehouse space is going to continue to be at a premium. And Leighton discussed the real estate part of this. You're seeing warehouses start to command higher and higher prices on the market because warehouse rents are going up. And multiple studies suggest that inventory of warehouses, that's not growing with demand. So you're going to see that warehouse space continue to command a higher price. And with that knowledge, if e-commerce retailers don't find a way to limit returns other than making it maybe difficult for the consumer to return projects, which is not something you want to do, it's going to make it very difficult for those retailers to remain afloat long term because, again, it's going to appear as a money-losing proposition. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We've reached the final segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead, where each Slayton and I take a look at a story we're keeping an eye on over the next week, month, or year. Here towards the end of the year, it's kind of a dead time for retailers because they're not making a lot of news. They're focused on what's going on in the store. But my story actually comes from Bed Bath & Beyond. Earlier this week, they announced the departure of six members of its executive team. And of course, this all comes after Mark Tritton was hired as their new CEO, Target's former CMO or chief merchandising officer that was overseeing a lot of those private label brands that Target was so good at marketing just over the last couple of years. Now, we're looking at these members of the executive team, heads of merchandising, heads of marketing, heads of digital, heads of legal, all out, chief brand officer, also out. So it's obvious while I'm looking ahead to this, and this is a story that we've kind of touched on very briefly in our looking ahead segments. But again, 
just looking to what change that Mark Tritton can exact at Bed Bath & Beyond. And again, it's not just Bed Bath & Beyond here. We're looking at World Market. We're looking at Bye Bye Baby. In this case, it looks like he is cutting a pretty broad cloth here in terms of the changes that he's looking to make with the leadership team. And I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility to say these changes needed to happen. We look at Bed Bath & Beyond as a slowly shrinking retailer over the last half dozen years or so. And of course, Mark Tritton coming in, trying to get his own personnel, his own staff in charge there at Bed Bath & Beyond. But the reason I'm looking ahead to this I want to see what changes the new executive team comes up with. You know, obviously, Mark Tritton can make some changes to that executive team, but it's going to be those people that he puts in place. What are they going to do to turn things around? Obviously, Wall Street fairly bullish on this. In fact, the stock popped around 11% after the news of the leadership team being gutted, essentially. So obviously, Wall Street thinks good things are ahead, but I'm a little bit more cynical. We love Mark Tritton on this show. We complimented him a lot when he was at Target. But again, it comes down to the people you put in those positions. And sometimes new CEOs don't make the right call, whether that's nepotism or something else. So it all comes down to those new hires in those spaces and what they do. So I'm going to be watching this company very closely, especially over the next couple of months. For this week, Trent, I do not have a looking ahead like you did just now, but I have rather a where we went segment. And sometimes we put this in the middle of the show. This is where we talk about the retailers we most recently visited. If it's a new retailer or if it's maybe an old retailer like Kmart, where we talk about how depressing it is that they're going to all be gone soon. But this actually has a positive spin to it in, in that my most recent trips were to Grocery Outlet. And Smart and Final, two grocery stores, two grocery store chains that we've talked about here on the podcast this year. One is publicly traded in Grocery Outlet and one is privately held via Smart and Final. And Smart and Final has been around since 1871. Grocery Outlet's been around since 1946. They're similar, though, in a number of ways. And this is the main thing I want to talk about in this segment. It is sort of a looking ahead, actually, in that I am going to be talking about how their full ray and their expansion in the grocery sector, at least in Southern California, is going to have a major impact, I feel, into others' potential expansion or just the market share dynamic in general. Grocery Outlet, for reference, has 320 locations or a little bit more than that now. Same amount of locations for Smart and Final, which we talked about again recently on the podcast. Both are very similar in terms of merchandising, Trent. This is a very interesting model because it is not like anything we've seen, pretty much. It, they're taking a little bit from all of the grocers and putting it together, and they're keeping prices low. They're keeping transactions simple at the point of sale. And you see a lot of customers just absolutely falling in love with these concepts. I'll start first with Smart and Final. Smart and Final is more of a hybridized mix of a conventional grocery. So you have a lot of different sections that have a multitude of items that you would find at maybe a Costco or a Sam's Club. So a lot of things in bulk. But then if you go over to their fresh foods or even their liquor section, it is much more like a conventional grocery chain that we would talk about on the podcast more often, like a Kroger or the privately held Albertsons. You see a lot of different items mixed in too now where some are organic, some are conventional, but one thing remains the same is that generally speaking, 
they pay a lot less attention to merchandising detail. They, they don't spend a lot of money on that. The money that they spend, at least from my perspective, the overhead that they spend is to make sure the products are on the shelves, that everything's labeled correctly, and that's pretty much it. Make sure inventory's in check and that the prices are right and that there's plenty of people at the checkout lines, which I love, by the way, because both of these retailers had virtually no lines. And when I say no lines, I don't mean no cashiers attending to customers. I'm saying a lot of customers, but not a lot of wait time because they had plenty of help to assist at the point of sale. So honestly, Trent, Smart and Final really was the winner if I had to compare these two because it was a little bit cleaner. They had a little bit more selection and it was a little bit bigger. And if you look anecdotally, I end up coming into an area which I was right. If you look at a Smart and Final store, they average around 20,000 square feet. Grocery outlet, a little bit less, 15 to 16,000 square feet. By the way, right in line with Aldi, who you could also throw in there as sort of a mix of what they're trying to play on. But grocery outlet for, again, all that they have in terms of their over 320 stores, a little bit smaller of a footprint, uh, even less attention paid to merchandising. Concrete floors, the shelves were extremely cheap in nature. They weren't aesthetically pleasing by any means, but everything was extremely simple. There was actually a little bit less product to proportionate to Smart and Finals layout. I found that very interesting in that they were right to the point. They said, this is this section, this is that section, and you're not going to find these products in any other section throughout the store that you would in maybe an Albertsons or Kroger in terms of maybe having specials in one area of the store or beverages at the front and then beverages also at the back. Things like that did not exist at Grocery Outlet. And I think, again, that speaks to their level of attention to detail in terms of keeping those overhead costs low. I'm sure all of those stores have planograms that they have to strictly abide by. They go and abide by them, even though there's a individuality amongst those stores. And then that's it. So I found it extremely fascinating that these stores, at least in Southern California, where I live, were able to compete right across the street from those big box chains that do such high volume here and do very, very well. And it's not like Grocery Outlet or Smart and Final are paying less in terms of lease costs. So they're able to compete proportionate to that of those larger retailers there in the grocery space. Absolutely amazing. And by the way, Trent, these two stores, fairly new. These are grocery stores that had just come in with the last five years. I actually spoke to the manager at the grocery outlet. He said the store was only one year old and doing very, very well on its way to unit profitability. So I just find it so fascinating. This last week, we were talking about how natural grocers up in Northern California are coming in and potentially having an opportunity to take market share from all the other natural grocers we talked about here on the podcast. And here are these other chains that are competing with the conventional grocers that aren't so fixated on those organic and natural product offerings. That is, Trent, my hybridized looking ahead and where we went to shop. That'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast this week. I hope everyone has a happy holiday week coming up. Next week, we will have our annual top five and bottom five or five at least performing retailers of 2019. That is always, we've done it now for four consecutive years. 
That is always one of the most listened to episodes of the year. We'll also be joined by Danny Cushion of Cardlytics to talk a little bit about distressed retailers, the retailers we lost during 2019, and what other retailers can do to make sure they grasp onto that market share. Again, so long from Leighton and I, and we'll see you again about seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.